Since today I'm doing the liturgy and the sermon and communion, I get to say good morning three times. So good morning. <laughs> um, our text for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And the story that we're about to read is perhaps one of the most well-known stories in the Gospels. It's uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is a story about mercy. It's about meeting human needs through deeds. But his teaching on mercy is part of a bigger theme that runs through the Gospel of Luke, which is discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. And yet, in a more fundamental way, the story is about God's grace and mercy to people who were his enemies. So let's read the passage and then we'll pray. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your might and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the inner keeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, as we meditate upon your word, I pray that your spirit might give us eyes to see. We want to see Jesus, how wonderful he is, how much we need him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, very likely you're familiar with the fable of the tortoise and the hare. It is a story about a hare that was making fun of a tortoise for moving too slow. The tortoise, tired of this mocking, challenged the hare to a race. And when the race started, the hare was so far ahead uh, of the tortoise that he decided to stop and have some rest. But he fell, fall asleep, fast asleep, I'm sorry. The, the tortoise continued making progress at his slow pace and eventually reached the finish line and won the race. So the fable is basically a timeless moral teaching summarized by the saying, slow and steady wins the race. Slow and steady wins the race. Do that or live like that and you will prosper or at least you will beat the competition, right? Now, the story of the Good Samaritan, it's not like that. And I know what a great illustration I picked to start a sermon, right? It's not like that. But it's actually important for us to be aware of that because it is easy to treat both stories the same way. It is easy for us to think that the story of the Good Samaritan is no more than an illustration to teach us a moral lesson about doing mercy and helping the one in need. 
Even Jesus' words at the very end, go and do likewise, seem to reinforce this interpretation, right? Well, actually not. Of course, the story is meant to teach us something, but it is not a simple moral principle by which we should live. The way to discover what it is about in a more fundamental way, it is by considering the context in which this story happens. The parable of the Good Samaritan is given in the midst of a conversation between Jesus and a lawyer or an expert in Jewish religion and the law of Moses who stood up to put Jesus to the test. Now, why would a religious expert want to put Jesus to the test? Well, put yourself in the shoes of this lawyer for a moment. His whole life was not just about studying as an academic exercise the law of Moses and the many other rules that people like him had created over time. It was actually about keeping those rules in order to be a good person or an acceptable person before God. But suddenly, a rabbi named Jesus appears on the, on the scene and people started talking about him. But he's not a normal rabbi. He associates with the wrong people, with sinful people. He heals on the Sabbath. His disciples like eating and drinking. He touches the unclean. In short, he's not the kind of rabbi you will expect. So the law expert comes to Jesus with probably the most central question he could have for him. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He was probably thinking, well, if it's not following the rule, then tell me what it is. Let's hear it. But that's how the, the dialogue begins. And we could say that Jesus' answer to this very important question is actually a threefold answer. Because Jesus gives him first a standard by which he should live. Secondly, Jesus gives him a clear picture of the standard, perhaps to dissipate any excuses. And finally, Jesus gives him a dynamic that could transform this man's life. A standard, a picture, and a dynamic. So let's look into each of these. First, the standard. A skill that I have been trying to learn in the last few years is the skill of asking good questions. But it's very, it's, it's hard. But I have found it very helpful, especially when you are coaching someone and that person comes to you with a question, but with the underlying assumption that he already knows the answer which many times it has been me, the one that comes that way. But one of the greatest things that you could do in such cases when you're dealing with people like me is actually reply with a question. And that's kind of what's going on here. The law expert came to Jesus asking, what should I do to inherit eternal life? With the underlying assumption that he already knows the answer. He's asking, but he's sure that eternal life is something he could achieve or earn on his own by doing his best in keeping the law. Now, notice how Jesus doesn't say, oh, forget about the law of God, just follow your heart, that's all that matters. Maybe that's what the man expected to hear from Jesus. Perhaps that's how he was planning to trap Jesus in an error. But that's not what Jesus answered. Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So instead of dismissing the law of God, Jesus actually upholds the law of God as the standard. But what he wants these men to see or to realize is that even though that's the way we should live, we can't. So trying to earn God's favor or God's approval by obeying the law, it's an impossible task. But the law expert doesn't see that yet. 
So in response to Jesus, he replied with a common summary of the law by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. To which Jesus responded, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now, there is a saying in Spanish, por la boca muere el pez, which will translate something like, the fish dies by the mouth. And it's used when someone gets in trouble by what they said. It's similar to the idea of what you say may come back to haunt you. I learned that this week. And it actually applies very well to this lawyer. Because look at what the law of God demands as properly verbalized by this law expert. And then think if it's doable or achievable by any of us as this man thought it was. First, the law requires that we must love God with a total commitment. From our whole person, our every faculty and capacity. As one commentator puts it, it means that to God we must give a total love. A love which dominates our emotions, a love which directs our thoughts, and a love which is the dynamic of our actions. And secondly, this love for God, if it's real, should inevitably lead us to love our neighbor whom God created in his own image, as we love ourselves. Now, before we say something that might come back to haunt us, remember, por la boca muere el pez, think a little bit in the logic here, because it is very easy to say that we love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind, and we just feel it, but then our lack of love for our neighbor might prove us wrong. And still, someone might say, well, I actually love God so much and I love my neighbor as I love myself and yet our lack of action to meet the needs of others will actually expose that we don't. We don't. Now why do I connect these three, three things? Well in the first letter of John 3.17 we read but if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in, in need yet closes his heart against him how does God love abide in him? John is not saying that if you care for the one in need, then God will approve you and then his love will be upon you. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that caring for the economically poor is a test or a sign that you have experienced God's love in your life and therefore that you love him. Same in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is saying that in the day of judgment, he will separate those that belong to him from those that do not. And the way he will distinguish one from the other is by the way they treated the ones in need. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And again, the idea here is that these deeds of mercy are signs or proof that someone knows Jesus and in a similar way, we read in the book of James, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So again, our mercy deeds speak about our love or our lack of love for our neighbor, and therefore they speak about our love or our lack of love for God himself. Mercy is central 
to what it means to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And that's how God wants us to, to, to live. But it's a very high standard. And when we measure our lives to it, we end up guilty and condemned. Now, before I move to the next point, let me say just one more quick thing. Because there might be some here who are thinking, you know, I actually don't care about God's law. I live by my own rules. I just want to be true to myself. I just want to, you know, be a good citizen here. And yet, some way or another, you are not in a better position. Because we all have this tacit or implicit idea that we should live in a certain way even if we have disagreements of what that should be. And as C.S. Lewis explained, it is an idea that we can get rid of, even though we know we don't live that way. But we want to. We want to because we care. We want to live up to the standard of what we consider good and right because we care. We care about our legacy, or we care about what others might think of us, or we care. We, we want to prove to ourselves that we are good. And yet, our lives are haunted by regrets because we don't even live up to our own standards and we struggle with, with guilt. So what can we do? Well, let me tell you what we normally do and this takes us to our second point, the picture of mercy that Jesus portrays in the parable. One of the main ways that we try to deal with the problem of not being able to live up to God's standards is by trying to lower the standard. And that's exactly what the religious expert tried when he asked, and who is my neighbor? In an attempt to make the standard more accessible. Perhaps he was thinking, as many times we do, what's the minimum? What's the minimum that I have to do in order to check the box that I love my neighbor or that I help the poor? But Jesus wouldn't let the standard go down. And he actually replied with a story that exemplifies the kind of love that God demands. And it is a story about what it means to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And guess what? It's a story about mercy. Meeting the human needs of a stranger through deeds. Now, in the story, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This was a, a very dangerous road. Jerusalem was or is about 2,300 feet above sea level, and the Dead Sea near where Jericho stood is actually 1,300 below sea level. So in about 17 miles, the, the, the road dropped 3,600 feet. So it was a, a road of narrow, rocky passages that made it ideally for robbers to hide, and then to attack, and then to escape. Up to the 5th century, it was known as the Bloody Way. So you can imagine how dangerous it was. So the men in this parable fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Then came a Levi who, as well, saw him and passed by on the other side. Now, it is interesting that both the priest and the Levi served at the temple. They were religious people. Both of them were required to help this man, but instead deliberately um, trying to avoid the possibility of any contact, they pass on the other side. Probably both of them were afraid of becoming unclean according to the ceremonial law by touching a man that was probably dead. But perhaps even more pressing than becoming unclean was the possibility of risking their own lives. 
<clears throat> they probably thought, you know, if the robbers are still around, what will happen to me if I stop and help this man? But then came a Samaritan who thought, what will happen to him if I don't stop? The Samaritan had compassion. And what he did was basically meet the human needs of the man on the road through deeds. He went to him, bound up his wounds, poured oil and wine, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him, and then paid to the inner keeper to take care of him. It's an amazing picture of mercy in action. And as I mentioned before, one of the things that the parable intends to do is to prevent us from lowering the standard of what it means to love our neighbor. In other words, it is a picture of what true love for our neighbors looks like. Now, think for a moment. Some of the ways we try to lower the, the commandments that we read in the scriptures regarding caring for the one in need. And I'm going to give you actually a couple of examples. Many times we think that we are to help people only if we like them. Only if they, if they are like us or only if we have something in common with them. So we, we worry about one of our friends, you know, going through difficult times. And we should. We should. But the parable says that we should not limit mercy that way. The parable puts forth a Samaritan that helped a Jew. Now, we need to remember that Jews and Samaritan, Samaritans didn't like each other. The Samaritans were a mixed race that resulted of the intermarriage between the northern tribes of Israel and the Assyrians when, they, when the Assyrians conquered the land. And they were seen by the Jews as an impure race and as heretics. There was great animosity between them. So the Samaritan very easily could have excused himself from helping the man on the road. He's not my responsibility. He's not part of my clan. He's not a person that I can relate to. He doesn't believe what I believe. He's not in my agenda for today. He's not someone that will ever pay me back. But here's the thing. He didn't. He didn't. We can't limit mercy to the people that we like or to the ones that are similar to us. We can't limit mercy even to our own Christian community. Galatians 6.10 states, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to one another. Let us do good to everyone, I'm sorry, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we must take care of those who are part of the Christian community, not just our local community, but the local Christian community, but we need to do good to, to all people. One of the key reasons for doing mercy to all is that the nations will see and will know the Lord and will come and worship him. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we only do good to our own people, nobody will be shocked. Because it's normal to take care of your own. It is expected that you take care of your own. But Christians not only take care of their own, but are generous to everyone. In short, the parable tells us that we must show mercy to the people that we will normally not associate with and to the ones that believe differently from what we believe. Now, another example. Many times we think that we should be merciful to someone 
uh, we shouldn't be merciful to someone because he's not in extreme need yet. He's not in extreme need yet. He still has something to eat. But this idea strikes at the very heart of what it means loving your neighbor as yourself. Jonathan Edwards, who was a Presbyterian pastor in the 18th century, once wrote that we should relieve our neighbor only when in extremity it is not agreeable to the rule of loving our neighbor as ourselves. That rule implies that our love towards our neighbor should work in the same manner and express itself in the same ways as our love towards ourselves. We are very sensible of our difficulties. We should also be rarely sensible of theirs. Let me give you an example. Many of us who have kids, you know, we value, we know and we, or we know the value of enrichment opportunities at an early age that will help our kids in their development in, in many ways and that will open doors for them in the future, perhaps a scholarship, perhaps a better GPA, or we care about the, the quality of education that our kids get in school, or we care about supporting their education when we feel like they're staying behind in a particular subject, or we care about them just like exploring new things that will just stimulate their minds and make their eyes you know, shine full of creativity. And this is good and right. This is good and right. But to love our neighbors as ourselves requires that we look around to this neighborhood or to the kids of our employees. And then we ask, but what about them? What if I don't stop? What will happen to them if we don't stop and help? That's what it means to love our neighbor as, our, as we love ourselves. Now, let's move on to the third point, the dynamic that could transform our lives up to this point, um, there's a strong possibility that many of us are feeling guilty because we don't, we know, we know we haven't done enough for our neighbor. But guilt and pride won't take us anywhere. And the point of the parable is not to leave us feeling guilty. Guilt or pride won't change our hearts and won't bring about the life God wants us to experience. So then what? What can bring change? What can transform our lives? Well, Pastor Tim Keller, to whom I'm very indebted to my understanding of this passage, calls it a, a dynamic. Jesus wants this expert of the law to understand the dynamic that could transform his life. But let me explain what that means. Think again on the story. A man fell into the hands of robbers between Jerusalem and Jericho. First come the priest, then come the Levite. None of them stop. But then, what if? What if the story will have ended not with a Samaritan stopping to help, but with a Jew passing by and seeing a poor Samaritan lying on the floor, half dead. But because he was a caring person or a moral man, he stopped and he helped this poor Samaritan. Now, what will the religious expert make out of that? He probably, he could have thought, oh, if I were that fellow, I wouldn't stop you know, and help the Samaritan. He doesn't deserve it. No thank you, you know. But most likely, most likely, because he was a man trying to keep the rules, he thought, what a righteous man he is. I'm going to live like him. I know I can do better. But that's not how the story goes. 
you see, the way Jesus tells the story is by putting the Jewish man on the road, half dead, and the Samaritan is the one that stops and shows mercy. If the man laying on the road was a Samaritan, it wouldn't be surprising that a Levi or that uh, the Levite or the priest didn't stop, nor will it be shocking that another Samaritan had stopped to help a fellow Samaritan, a fellow brother. No big deal there. The story is shocking because it was a Samaritan that stopped to help a Jewish man on the road. A Jewish man just like the law expert. So the question Jesus wants the lawyer to think about first is not which character of the story would you like to be like? But instead, what if? What if it were you, the one half dead in the middle of the road? What if your only hope was to receive mercy and compassion from an enemy who owes you nothing? Wouldn't you want him to have mercy on you? And then, if that had been you and you had gone through that horrible experience, but somebody has showed you that kind of mercy, how, how will you then look at and treat other people, perhaps in similar desperate situations, regardless of their, of their race? Will you show them mercy? It is not until you experience that kind of compassion radical compassion that you can show that kind of radical compassion but where do we get it where can we experience that kind of abundant mercy capable of transforming our hearts and capable of moving us to radical generosity where do we get it well only in Jesus because the Bible tells us that we were the ones lying by the road with no hope we were not half dead, but completely dead in our trespasses and sins. We couldn't do anything to fix our situation. We couldn't even call for help. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were his enemies, he sent Jesus to rescue us. And he didn't just risk his life, but he gave it in our behalf. Because he loves us. And only when we taste that infinite mercy of Christ. And in the degree that we actually rejoice in that mercy. Is that we can show the radical kind of mercy that God wants to see in us. Because only that mercy will make us be brave enough to risk our comfort. To risk our lives. To risk our possessions. Only that kind of mercy will help us see the value and the dignity of every human being as created in God's image. And will give us the desire to see them experience the same grace of Jesus. And then to see them flourish. And only that kind of mercy will make us feel secure and accepted before God. Even when we fail and will lead us to repentance and will lead us to try again and try again. Friends, we live in the road to Jericho. There are more than 300,000 victims of human trafficking at any given moment in the state of Texas. 79,000 of them, 79,000 of them are minors and youth in sex trafficking. 
Houston ranks number one in terms of human trafficking rates. And ironically, I believe we're also number one in, um, as the city with the most mega churches. One in three children in our city lives in poverty. There are more than 17,000 kids in foster care in the states of Texas. Now, 95% of the kids that uh, on the school that we partner here, here uh, that we partner with here in Spring Branch, are actually on free or reduced lunch, which means, I'm sure, that they don't get many extracurricular enrichment opportunities that will help them flourish. So we need to stop. We need to stop and ask, what about them? What will happen to them? There is, there is much work to do and many, many opportunities to rebuild God's kingdom through Christ uh, with our words and with our deeds. And one thing you could do is um, serve alongside some of our ministry partners. But here's the thing, and that's a great thing to do, which, um, but here is the thing. There is a lot you could do simply by looking around to the people that you normally do life with. Sometimes we just need to open our eyes and not move away from the opportunity. More than adding, you know, an extra activity to your agenda, many times it, it might be a matter of realigning your priorities. But the good news is that there is hope because God is at work in the world and because he is at work in our hearts as pastor of mission, I have the privilege of hearing many stories of what God is doing both locally and globally. Uh, I had coffee the other day with somebody from here, one of our members, and he's very passionate about a ministry that uh, helps children in or serves children in the third world. But what really got my attention in that conversation is that he was telling me uh, how when he grew up, he had all these opportunities as a kid, and then now his kids have all these opportunities, enrichment opportunities. But then he turned to the kids on the third ward and he thought, but what about them? What opportunities do they have? You know, that's a sign of God's grace. That's a sign of the grace of Jesus at work in somebody's heart. And I, I pray that we will see uh, much more of that in our midst. But only if we taste the mercy of Christ for us. And to the degree that we rejoice in that mercy of Christ for us, can we aspire to move in the right direction. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we will know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you do a mighty work in our midst and open our eyes. May we know no, really know better the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for his sake became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Move us to be a more, a more, to be a more merciful people, a radical merciful people, just as you are merciful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.